When's the last time you took a trip or enjoyed live music? Yeah, it's been a while and massively disruptive for everyone, including performing artists like members of the Toronto Symphony Orchestra. It's frankly been catastrophic. The musicians took some extraordinarily um, concessionary cuts to their wages. The staff did the same thing. We've reduced pensions to ourselves. Our overall budget has gone from about $30 million to $17 million over the course of this next year. Like you, I just had a summer like no other. No concerts, no sporting events, no restaurants, none. But I did order more books in a typical week than I did in a typical summer. And I stayed in a few Airbnbs within driving distance of Toronto, in places I'd never otherwise have visited. I watched more documentaries, foreign films, and even visited a few galleries in places I'd never been to. And I got comfortable meditating online. I mean, what does that mean, meditating online? This was the summer of disruption, because every relationship we have was disrupted. In May, my colleagues and I started to take note of pandemic trends in a document called Eight Ways COVID Will Transform the Economy and Disrupt Every Business. It put forward theories around changes in travel, shopping, healthcare, education, entertainment, and more. And it made quite a splash, bigger than we'd anticipated. It seems like people were really hungry for guidance in the midst of uncertainty. We felt it was time to take stock again of what's happening now and what it means. On this podcast, we'll talk about how we think businesses and all of us can bounce back. Because after all, with unprecedented times come unprecedented opportunities. This is RBC Disruptors. I'm your host, John Stackhouse. I'm here with my colleague, Teresa Doe, a strategist from the RBC Thought Leadership Team who was instrumental in creating our report. Teresa, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So give us a quick overview for anyone who hasn't read the report of what the big findings were. Yeah, absolutely. So as you mentioned, the report consists of basically vignettes of the most notable changes to our lives and businesses that we had seen in the early days of the pandemic. Uh, and it ran the gamut, of course, from the very sudden shift to how we work, all the way to more ethereal concepts of how we, as in Canada, trade and interact with other countries or how we travel. We didn't. And the report was very simple, which I think made it that much more appealing to our audiences. So we had made a few observations for each trend. We extrapolated what they could mean. And then we looked at which parts of the respective industries or types of companies were poised to have an advantage or not so much. I think your point about simplicity is really valuable because I, I've observed over time that the more complex the world gets, the simpler people want things to be. And anyone who can help simplify complexity has an extra value, especially in uh, critical times like these. We also live in a country of probably 40 million experts now on things like the disruption of how we work, how we travel, because we're all part of that. Teresa, let's start with how we travel. Lots of really interesting and challenging trends underway. But tell me a bit about your own travels. What did you do differently in the summer of 2020? I have to say that how we travel has been one of the more disappointing parts of the pandemic for me personally. I'm a huge avid traveler. And uh, right at the beginning of the pandemic, actually, I had a trip to New York City planned. Uh, this was first weekend of April. And of course, it was completely canceled, especially as New York emerges 
one of the hot spots of the pandemic. So no Broadway, no pizza, no cronuts, highly disappointing. But over the summer, you know, we may do with traveling to local places. We visited family who live up north in Ontario a lot more, did the cottaging, got to kayak and canoe, which was nice. And Wait a second. Are, are you a kayaker or was this uh, your introduction to kayaking? So I wouldn't say I'm a kayaker. I would say I am an inexperienced, enthusiastic trier of kayaking. I find the kayaking is much easier than canoeing. I don't know. I've tipped once in a canoe and I think I've been scarred ever since. There's also great insights. I'm really sorry about the the, the New York trip and, and uh, hope you get back there soon, uh, although it may be a while. But that shift in travel is actually really important because I suspect we all had similar experiences. I uh, did a lot of driving trips in Southern Ontario, spent some time around Guelph, Ontario, which I've never really spent time in. I've driven by it. I've uh, been at the University of Guelph a number of times, but never really spent time in the community, which was fascinating. And that's the sort of local travel that I think we've all immersed ourselves in. And then, of course, there's been a ton of staycationing. Uh, I, I did a lot of biking around Toronto and got to know different parts of the city. When you look at the travel landscape, the shift is valuable. Tour operators are going more local. They're offering staycationing options, but kind of dollar for dollar doesn't replace itself, or does it? I think they are undergoing tremendous changes. I subscribed to Condé Nast Traveler magazine, and I saw that recently they had declared a new standard for the travel industry that includes following current best practices for health and safety being much more transparent with guests and travelers, going that extra mile to communicate with them, being flexible with with booking and rebooking because our lives are in such flux right now that they would have to be. Uh, so we had actually spoken to Nisreen Atassi, and she's the global head of public relations for Expedia and the host of Expedia's podcast, Out Travel the System. Providers should be really transparent with all the extra steps that they're taking to make sure that properties or activities or whatever it ends up being is really adhering to some proper COVID standards. In addition to that, travel providers should really look to have as much flexibility as they can have. So whether it's making it you know, fully refundable or allowing travelers to make changes with these, I think that's going to be the most important thing. Those are great insights. And I think they raise some interesting questions for anyone in the travel business. Canadians may not appreciate that we actually spend more traveling outside of Canada than international travelers spend in Canada. So theoretically, at least, the limits on international or cross-border travel could be a net gain for the Canadian economy. Now, that's going to be redistributed fairly significantly and perhaps painfully for some operators, uh, especially the, the long-haul operators. But for local providers and communities, there's an opportunity there to bring people from big centers out to smaller centers. We're seeing this with Airbnb bookings in rural areas. We're seeing this with uh, experiential travel. But as we head towards winter, what, Teresa, do you think the travel industry and communities more broadly that depend on travel and tourism need to be thinking about as we shift seasons and maybe as we all become a little more accustomed to the stay-at-home environment of the pandemic? 
I think if the broader travel industry can emulate some of the things that work with ski resorts and being able to use those outside patios and being able to create those experiences outside and take advantage of the great white north, I think that would do very well and go a long way. Yeah, I was in uh, the Laurentians in late summer and it was packed. Uh, it was full of people from Montreal, obviously trying to get away from uh, the city and enjoy the last days of summer. And demand for winter accommodation there is soaring. So we'll see a number of communities with those amenities, like a ski hill, thriving, but maybe an opportunity for a creative approach for other communities to think of themselves as all season when they might have been depending on a single season or a couple of seasons. I wonder if uh, more of us will take up skiing now. Well, or or tobogganing or snow or, or snowshoeing or cross country, those would all be good things. I mean, Canadian winters, as, as much as I am a warm weather person, uh, Canadian winters are fantastic. And when you embrace them, there's nothing like them in the world. Yeah, absolutely. So when, growing up, I much preferred winter vacations, going skiing. I learned to ski and snowboard when I was very young. And that was uh, to my mom's chagrin because she always wanted to go to Mexico or Cuba and stay at a resort for seven days on the beach drinking pina coladas. And I was always like, no, mom, like, let's take advantage of the snow. It's so beautiful and fun. We'll have you back on future podcasts to help us through uh, winter with uh, with updates on how to uh, how to embrace it. Um, Teresa, let's look at some of the other trends because there, there are eight of them. We're not going to get to all of them in this podcast. People can uh, read the report and look at our social media streams on Twitter and LinkedIn to uh, get into the conversation. But one of the most important trends, actually, it's the, the number one trend that we look at in the report is how we work. And it's profound. My head still spins when I think about the fact that 5 million, maybe more Canadians shifted from centralized work locations to home-based or remote-based work locations in a matter of a week. I mean, it's just an extraordinary moment. Our own organization, we had 50,000 people, I think it was, kind of shift locations pretty quickly. I don't think we've seen each other in six months, even though we deal with each other almost on a daily basis. Um, I'm not sure how sustainable this is, and that's one of the great debates in business right now. Is this sustainable? And there's a lot of tensions out there between employees and employers, uh, with communities, with uh, service providers from daycare to transit that all are adjusting to this new work model. But tell me a bit about how, how you're finding it. Uh, we all have different experiences working remotely. Uh, we like to say work from home, but some people working remotely means you know going to the local coffee shop or library if a library is open or a park bench on a nice day. Oh, that sounds wonderful. I wish I could be on a park bench right now. I think I'm in my sixth straight month of wearing sweatpants, honestly. Yeah, working from home has been an interesting challenge. On the one hand, it's been really great getting to roll out of bed, brush your teeth, wash your face, and then just walk into the next room, open your laptop and start working. So that lack of commute time has been fantastic. But on the other hand, I'm a big extrovert. I like, you know, peeking over at what people are eating in the lunchroom nudging my desk mate and asking what's going on and having these side conversations, these candid moments that can spark a lot of interesting ideas. Uh, not having that has been difficult for me. And I am working in a small apartment in downtown Toronto that feels like it's getting smaller every day. And so it's, it's a challenge because you can't really turn off. Your mind is racing. I think that builds anxiety. And personally, as much as I want to go back to the office, 
I'm a little bit worried about being stuck in a long line for the elevators and then getting there and it's two people each. And so it takes even more time and then planning ahead for every meeting that we need to zip to. So it's it's a mixed bag for sure for me. How about you? No, it's it's such a challenge. I've gone into the office uh, here, here and there, and it's weird being in a deserted office or empty corridors. And it's also weird being in the underground network in uh, downtown Toronto, where there's a fair number of other people, not crowds like there used to be, but it, it does feel discomforting. But there's also that psychological challenge that I think we're all wrestling with, not to be around other people. So there's a toll on individuals and a toll on organizations. I've been really interested to talk to a number of organizational leaders, big and small businesses, community groups. And I always ask, is, is this going to work for you in the long term? And increasingly, I'm hearing from those leaders that, that this is challenging. This may not be sustainable. We're also seeing a really interesting challenge for the um, kind of the network providers, uh, the, the landlords of office towers, the operators of uh, retail malls that uh, sit below those towers. It's going to be fascinating to see how this goes over the next few months. Let's talk about how we shop, because that's also undergoing profound change. Uh, I think we'll all become very comfortable having stuff delivered to us. And it's, it's been really interesting in the report to see the rise, not just of e-commerce, but the shift to new goods, soft goods, as they're called groceries, are now being delivered in a very significant number. I think it's like a third of grocery spend is now online versus a quarter at the beginning of the pandemic. And I don't know what, what your local uh, food and grocery stores are like, but there's a lot of shoppers in there who aren't buying for themselves. It's an interesting shift in the model. Teresa, in your own shopping, what kind of changes are you seeing and what um, what do you think are the opportunities? I think the biggest change in my life when it comes to shopping is I don't wander as much anymore through the aisles of stores. I'm a big wanderer. I like touching things as I pass by, turning the labels and just reading and taking my time. And there is no opportunity to do that anymore because there's always someone behind you waiting to peruse that same aisle. And the arrows that exist in grocery stores, I find that I, I'm very bad at following them and I get a lot of mean looks when I go the opposite direction. And then, you know, I, I harness some of that frustration myself when I see other people doing it. So that probably does not engender a very good attitude towards others and strangers. I, I'm waiting for the uh, the emergence of arrow police, be it in uh, stores or offices. I, I, I have that fear that you do of kind of going the wrong way down one way aisle or corridor. But I also feel that anxiety now when I shop of just needing to get in and out. And uh, I, I, f I feel like my uh, blood pressure goes up if I stop to peruse. But yeah, that um, that e-commerce convenience, uh, as I said at the beginning, I'm buying lots more books because it's just so fantastic. I just open an app, press on a book I like, and 24, 48 hours later, it's at my door. That's amazing. What does that mean longer term in your view? Because retail, you know, we're talking about it from a consumer experience. Retail is also a foundation stone of our economy, but also of communities. Main Street, the local strip mall, they're part of the community. They pay a lot of taxes. Uh, what does this mean in a bigger picture way, do you think, if this trend continues? A theme that you've definitely touched on many times in the past few months, that this digital transformation that we're seeing and the demand for e-commerce, it's a real advantage for the big tech companies, the platform players, the Amazons of the world. For the smaller businesses, the local mom and pop shops, 
I honestly think it's very difficult to compete with that sort of scale and those resources. And so the only alternative or one of the only alternatives, I should say, is how do you build that relationship? How do you build that connection with your customers, your consumers, such that they will pick you over perhaps a more convenient large player. So I think that's going to be, that's going to have to be a real differentiator. And personally, I've noticed my own habits change. I, I feel a kinship with, you know, some of the local boutiques and stores that are close to me. And I would rather support them than put my money towards uh, a global tech player. Kinship is such a great word because one of the drivers of this change and of the opportunity is going to be data and organizations, businesses, as well as nonprofits need to think about how they balance the age of data, which we're going to get into in our discussion with that need for for kinship. We're seeing all these changes in our daily lives. We're seeing it in our businesses, in our organizations, and it's likely to continue uh, no matter the direction of this pandemic, some of it for good, some of it uh, maybe with costs that we need to think more seriously about. Just ahead, we'll update our projections about how we watch and the impact that that's having, not just on entertainment and big league sports, but on culture organizations in every community across the country. You're listening to RBC Disruptors. I'm your host, John Stackhouse. Our goal this season is to look at the forces reshaping the Canadian economy, including COVID-19, and hear from folks who see some of those obstacles as opportunities. Please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and get in touch if you think you have an idea for a great episode. I'm on Twitter at StackhouseJohn. Let's continue our look at the eight ways COVID is disrupting the Canadian economy. I'm joined by my colleague, Teresa Doe. Teresa, tell us about some of the changes we're seeing in the way we consume entertainment and culture. I suspect we're all binging. Um, Maybe tell us a bit about what you're binging, if you don't mind, uh, as well as what else you're consuming that maybe you weren't before the pandemic. Definitely binging, John. I wasn't a big TV person before, and now I feel all I do outside of work is watch TV. Just finished a show called The Expanse, uh, which is basically humanity set 200, 300 years in the future. We've colonized Mars. We have miners out in the asteroid belt. We're exploring different planets in the solar system. And I would really recommend it because there are so many big themes about nature, our environment, feeling grateful for the air we breathe, the water we drink, because by that point, like Earth is polluted. And so that's been a fantastic show that has taken me out of the pandemic and into the future. No, that's really interesting. I, I didn't appreciate you were watching that. I've, I've also started to dip into Away, uh, which is about a, a space crew going to Mars. Still getting my head around it, but there's definitely something going on with Mars and our interest in it. But I think there's a bigger set of existential questions that we're all starting to grapple with. And entertainment is not just about kind of sitting on the couch and being entertained. It's about immersing us in conversations. And maybe we're gaining access to more culture than ever before. It's just being delivered in very different ways. Off the top of this episode, we heard Matthew Loden, CEO of the Toronto Symphony Orchestra, and he said how COVID was catastrophic. But he also described it as an extraordinary opportunity to do business in a very different way. 
One of the things that we've had to do at the Toronto Symphony Orchestra is, is to create essentially a content hub online. We've had a number of different channels in the past that we've used, and, and now we have what is essentially an, an umbrella that allows us to digitally and online communicate around the world in, in extraordinary ways. And Canadian singer-songwriter Jill Barber agrees. So my first ever virtual show, I played solo acoustic at home from my living room. I had about 500 people watching on Zoom and I invited everyone to turn their videos on. And it was this incredible, quite different experience than a live show in a concert hall. So it, was, it had its own real intimacy and its own vibe, which, which I really enjoyed. Teresa, one of the most important lessons about disruption that we see in almost every sector that we study is that it's not about simply transferring a product or a service from one platform to another. It's not about taking a sporting event and putting it on uh, TV or taking a, an orchestra performance and putting it on YouTube. That's not really disruption. That's just a kind of a product extension through a different channel. Real disruption comes with the change in the user experience. And it's fascinating to see cultural groups start to come to grips with this. They do have something extraordinary to share in the form of music or art or uh, performances. And simply capturing that, say, by video and putting it on a platform probably won't do it. They're getting to create immersive interactive and shareable experiences that the old arenas, literally, or the old venues didn't allow. And that isn't just a change for the performer or the artist, it's a change for the consumer. Curious if, uh, if in your wanderings over the summer, especially in culture, what you're seeing in terms of innovations that you found inspiring from performing artists or from cultural groups? I would say that the creative industry is perhaps unsurprisingly creative and has been quite resilient through these times. One exhibit I would say that I was very impressed with is the Immersive Van Gogh exhibit in downtown Toronto. And it's, you know, it's housed in this old printing press room at the Toronto Star Building. And the basic concept is that the exhibit projects digitally enhanced Van Gogh works in this gigantic space, and they pair it with this soundtrack, it's ambient, it's kind of trance-like, and you're awash in sunflowers or a starry night or a portrait of the artist himself. And you get to wander around this gigantic space and being able to immerse yourself in it was, was quite beautiful, I found. So it's a safe way also to let people enjoy and, and remove themselves from the everyday just for a little bit, which I think is the beauty of arts and culture and its place in our society. Digital enhancement is a great term because too often we think of digital replacement. And I suspect in all these questions that we're raising, we're starting to see hybrid models, uh, whether it's education or healthcare or culture. And the innovators in culture and entertainment are going to be the ones that are able to create both the digital experience, but also the physical experience that are different from pre-pandemic. This in a way could be extraordinary, be transformational for culture groups, for entertainers, but also for the sports industry, which is enormous and has been heavily disrupted. I got to speak a few months ago in the middle of the pandemic with one of our colleagues and leaders, Mary DePauli, 
who is chief marketing officer at RBC, and also one of the most influential golf and sports marketers in North America. Here's what Mary said in June on our other podcast, The 10 Minute Take. COVID has had a fairly material impact on the global sports sponsorship industry. Globally, sports sponsorship rights fees are projected to decline about 40%. Major North American leagues are expected to lose, you know, close to 12 billion in revenue. And not to, to mention the hundreds of thousands of jobs due to the stoppage of sport. We had that conversation just before big leagues started to reopen, but with very different models, as we've seen with the NBA and NHL playoffs, with golf, no fans or very few fans. But it's been interesting to see some of the viewership numbers uh, for sports, not as predicted, some stronger, some weaker. Uh, Teresa, give us a, an overall snapshot of the fan experience and how you see it evolving. So I'll answer this question through the prism of basketball, like any good Torontonian. Uh, I thought the NBA's approach to keeping the feeling and the hype alive was really interesting. They had, and I'm sure you've seen this, I'm sure all of Canada has been tuning in, but they had projections of fans in the stands down in Disney World, which was cool because from the TV and the couch, it was almost hard to tell the difference between video projections of people versus an actual crowd. And the players were also mic'd up, so you can hear them hyping up their teammates and reacting in the moment or trash-talking the other team, uh, which probably would be something that we would not get to experience without the crisis. It's fascinating to watch entire sectors in transition, and we'll see a necessary change, I suspect, to business models. And I'm really impressed with what the NBA is doing. Uh, visually, it's very intriguing. But the cruel reality is those cutouts don't pay for their courtside seats. And that's a big part of the revenue model across all sports. And eventually it will come back. But uh, in the meantime, do models need to transition? And how will the big leagues literally adjust to this new fan experience, which is going to be more remote, but as we were discussing with culture, maybe more interactive. And I'm always looking to gaming for indications because it's a frontier sector and you see a lot of innovation there. One of the interesting tests we noted in the report was a Travis Scott concert that was inserted into a Fortnite video game and drew, I think it was 12 million fans. And that's disruptive to gaming, but think of the opportunities there for a performer, as we were discussing earlier with uh, culture, and then extend that to any sports environment. How do leagues and how do fans think about a more interactive, immersive, and social way of engagement? So this is uh, a, almost a historic moment of disruption, but with that, a maybe a historic moment for innovation. And one of the most important arenas for this is education and how we learn, which is another trend that we get into in the report. We're seeing right now something the world has never seen in the 500-year history of higher education. And there's high levels of anxiety and uncertainty among faculty, among students. But one of the messages I've, I've been trying to stress to uh, the groups I've been talking to is that what you've done this week or this month has never been done before. And you have a chance, you're pioneers, to take us to a different place. This is a moment, a difficult moment for sure, but a real moment to transform education. There's an opportunity using the power of the fourth industrial revolution 
of these advanced technologies that we're all using right now to change the way we learn, to change the way we go about education. Teresa, when you look at what we've studied in the report, what do you think is most important? I think the the shift to online learning that you've noted and our colleagues in RBC Economics have noted, the shift to online learning has been tremendous and fast. There are, of course, uh, some hiccups, but overall we're seeing some really interesting things happen. I'm curious about what that means for the student experience and then post-university, post-post-secondary, what that means for the skills that we build, how we apply those skills in the real world, how employers will look at your experience if you've had primarily an online experience. Is that a detriment to you or is that an advantage in an increasingly digital world? These are the questions I have going on my mind as a, you know, a, a not so recent grad myself. I would say that I learned way more outside of the classroom during school than I learned in the classroom. And how does that translate to an online or even a hybrid model. The challenge we see in any sector that's being disrupted or is in the throes of disruption is almost a natural human instinct to cling to the past. And we see this in education. I saw it in my uh, previous work in media, and I see it in most of the sectors that we watch. And that's understandable. It's a bit of human nature. It's also a function of often trying to keep a business model going for just another year or just another season. But when it comes to education, I think the model is particularly challenged. There is the shift to online learning, but more importantly, to a hybrid. And the real innovators in education, especially higher education, colleges and universities, are testing and will be testing ways of keeping the classroom and the lab, but also bringing in some of those interactive and immersive technologies. And the tools themselves, as powerful as they are, may not be the only focus for innovators they're looking at the data that come with these tools. And maybe as we wrap up, Teresa, we can reflect a bit on the data revolution that has been accelerated and compressed during this pandemic. One of the data points, ironically, that jumped out at me in our research was the amount of internet traffic increased 40% from, I think it was February to April. I mean, that's just mind boggling. And I think we all know why, because we were all culprits in that. And the data from all that activity is going disproportionately to big tech, to the large platform companies, which have done very well through this pandemic. The value of the big five tech firms, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, Google, or Alphabet, and Facebook is in the range of $7 trillion now. And that's 50% higher than it was at the beginning of the pandemic. So as we wrap up, Teresa, I wonder what we should all be thinking about when we think about the challenges, but also the opportunities. I mean, the most important thing is to be cognizant of the risks that are emerging as a result of these massive flows of data, you know, making sure that we're able to balance privacy safeguards with the use of data as a way to improve the customer experience. So that philosophy or that approach is not relegated to the big players, as you mentioned. How can small coffee shops uh, use what they know about their customers to make each trip for an Americano or cappuccino that much more personal, right? Because it's about that relationship that I mentioned earlier. I think that'll 
slowly start to set smaller businesses apart. So I think that is a great opportunity. And I'm hoping that something we'll see more and more of as people increasingly are comfortable with data and all that it can do for the economy. That's uh, really well said. There are there there are big risks, but also opportunities as well as expectations, because we're all getting very comfortable with a rapidly evolving landscape that is underpinned by technology and data. When I look through the report, I think one of the most important issues to think through is the idea of distributed activity. Much of our economy, our communities, our society is based on centralization. We come together in a shopping mall or an office or a school. It's efficient. There's a power of collaboration and creativity and also the human need to be together. At the same time, we're now seeing a scattering of activity in how we work, how we shop, how we watch. And that poses a real challenge to any model that's built on centralization, poses a challenge to social structures. But no matter what you're doing, if you're uh, in education or in healthcare, in business or in public service, you need to appreciate that this distributed model is not going to be pulled back into a fully centralized model anytime soon. And it's not just the way you deliver whatever it is you do, it's how you price it, but also how you personalize it. Because distribution isn't just an economic function. We as participants in the economy increasingly expect personalized service. We expect the services and maybe even the products that we get to be a little different. And the personalization, be it of education or of financial services or of healthcare, depends on data and depends on the confidence in data systems. So an opportunity and a risk there. Teresa, when you think back to all we've been through over the last six months, and maybe think ahead six months uh, through maybe a challenging winter ahead, and consider these trends that may be accelerating, are you more hopeful or more worried about where we're going? Ugh. I think when we look at business and the economy, I think we're seeing some really cool things, but I, my mind is on the human element. My mind is on the philosophy of how we relate to one another. I'm concerned that with this increasing isolation, will we continue to trust each other? Will we see a fear of strangers and people who are different, who are othered? Will we continue to see increasing political polarization and a divide between people who agree with us and agree that the pandemic is bad or people who don't quite see it that way? And so I am concerned about that. But on the flip side, there is so much opportunity and positives out there. We're seeing so much more ingenuity. We're seeing resilience. We're seeing some communities band together. Our Team Canada campaign, the Buy Local, I think all of these are bright spots in dark times. I'm probably a little more optimistic, uh, although very concerned about where we're going. And whether you're an optimist or a pessimist, I, I think, Teresa, you've touched on an essential point, which is human behavior and how we act together. So much of these, these conversations about disruption fall into the bucket of uh, technological determinism. We think tech will take us somewhere and the, the techno-optimists say it's going to take us to a better place. The techno-pessimists say uh, it's going to take us to a darker place. And it will take us to a place that we determine. 
Uh, I, I, I truly believe that it's up to humans. And if we double down on those human instincts, the good ones, if we double down on human relationships, on human contact, even when it has to be socially distanced or through technology, but if we keep it human, we'll be able to use the power of these disruptions to maybe create greater opportunities, to create stronger communities, build stronger companies coming out of this crisis. But it really is up to each of us. Teresa, thank you for all the work you're doing, uh, for all that you added to the Eight Trends report, and, and for this really valuable conversation. Thanks, John. Thank you so much for having me on the program. Teresa Doe is my colleague and a member of the RBC Thought Leadership Team. You can find the updated Eight Ways report at rbc.com slash thought leadership. I'm John Stackhouse, and this is Disruptors, brought to you by RBC. Join us next time for a deep dive into what it will take to build the she-covery and why doing so will help us all. Bye for now. RBC Disruptors is created by the RBC Thought Leadership Group and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. It's produced and recorded by JAR Audio. For more RBC Disruptors content, like or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit rbc.com slash disruptors.